Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Today's episode is a special pre-opening diaries of Momofuku Kawi with Executive Chef Unjo Park. We recorded a couple of podcasts three months ago or so, and we edited it down into one longer podcast. This will be the first of two podcasts we launch today and tomorrow where Unjo and I talk about her career, where she's traveled to, the amazing restaurants she's worked at, her time at Momofuku Co., and uh, my uh, pitch to her to become an executive chef of a new restaurant that none of us had any idea about what it was going to actually be. And we open it on March 15th, Friday, at the fifth floor of Hudson Yards, big new development, and it is something that we are very excited about. You may hear some trepidation and some uncertainty in Unjo's voice. We call her Joe, her nickname. It's because the prospect of being the head of a restaurant for the first time, especially when she's had no previous management experience, is a daunting task for anyone. And um, the idea that it was going to be easy, I think we all knew it wasn't going to be easy, but there's something about the lure of pre-opening where everything sort of seems possible. And then um, as it gets clearer that it's going to be a little bit closer to opening, things almost always, in my experience, go off the rails and panic starts to set in. And all the beautiful ideas that you had about what you were going to do, all the things on paper that you thought were going to be flawlessly executed start to sort of wilt under the pressure of opening date. And I wanted to get Joe's thoughts. The reason why she's never been a sous chef or executive chef before has nothing to do with experience. She's one of the really great kinds of cooks that decides to leave a restaurant when someone offers her a management position. So I've always admired that is that she's constantly trying to further her understanding of food and broaden her knowledge about cuisine. And she was never going to feel like she was ready. So we talk a little bit about getting her on board when we had the idea that maybe she'd be a great fit for a new project that we were going to do. And uh, she's someone that is incredibly resilient and special and hardworking And ultimately, too, I feel like she sort of encompasses something that is very close to me, the Korean immigrant story. Her parents came to this country as restaurant owners, and they wound up operating a cleaner, as many Korean immigrants do, or stuff like that. But the idea that Korean immigrants opening up a a business to further their children's prospects and the the pressure that Anjo put on herself to become a chef. So there's a lot there. I could talk endlessly about this, but I'll let Joe speak for herself. You're going to hear a lot of names about the industry, and she's worked at some of the best restaurants. And it's almost a cross-section of modern gastronomy today because it's such a small world, and it's something that I feel that a lot of younger cooks may not understand, that your reputation is so important as to how you finish and where you work at a restaurant because more often than not, your peer group, the cooks that you work with, the comey that might be under you, the the sous chef that's above you, they're going to, good chance, be the big names down the road. And Unjo's, you know, working group that she's she spent time with over the years at other restaurants, they're all like some of the biggest names in the business today. 
And it's great to see Joe finally get her opportunity. The one thing I, I definitely wanted to talk about was how I feel that this episode and tomorrow's episode of the Pre-Opening Diaries is a good sort of thread from the past three podcasts we've had with Lola's Eli, Jessica Coslow, and the art critic Jerry Saltz. So if you haven't listened to them, this should make sense. But if you have listened to the past three podcasts, this should sort of enrich a lot of the things we've been talking about, about taking a chance, about editing in your head, about just doing work under a deadline, and um, ultimately failing to get better. And that's the hardest part to do is to not just to do, to observe as well. And the story is unwritten for Unjo and the team of Kawi. It is just beginning. The future is unwritten, I should say. And I'm excited to be a part of that and to help out wherever I can. But I have no doubt that Unjo is going to conquer a lot of these problems that are important to develop and to learn her voice and to be a great chef. She has all the tools, and I know that she's going to make the best kinds of mistakes moving forward. I'll shut the fuck up now and let you hear our conversation uh, with Unjo Park, Pre-Opening Diaries, Volume 1, Volume 2, coming tomorrow. We're with the chef of the new restaurant that we're opening up called Kawi in Hudson Yards, Unjo Park. Welcome. Thank you. So a little back story. We call you Joe. Mm-hmm. Korean-American. Yep. From Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. But you've worked at some amazing restaurants. But before we go into that sort of CV, why cooking? And were your Korean parents very happy about knowing that you were going to become a cook? Um, it wasn't more of a cooking. It was more of surrounded by food, which I loved. And my parents, they, of course, wanted me to do something more stable and make money. And being a chef, it was definitely not one of it. But they knew that how much I wanted to do it. And they're supportive. What was their reaction when you first told them? They're like, why? Just because they know how hard it is because they owned a restaurant in Korea. So they're like, if what you want to Japanese Korean. <laughs> so they're like, if you're going to go cooking, why don't you go work for government or like a big hotel where you work eight hours and make better money than the restaurant. And I externed in hotel and I didn't like it. I wanted to learn raw, like actual cooking with like going to the market, picking up ingredients that I want to cook. So I went to restaurant industry. And what was your first restaurant job? Danielle. (laughs) (laughs) And who was your chef at Danielle at the Uh, time? Jean-Francois. He's still the chef there. And what years were this? 2007 to 2008. And did you go to cooking school? I did. I went to CIA. After high school? Straight to CIA? Yeah. um, Right after high school. I had three days break, and then I started right after. And where'd you do your externship at the hotel? I did MGM in Las Vegas. Oh, that's right. I forgot <laughs> you were in Vegas. <laughs> Why'd you choose Las Vegas? I was so green and young and Vegas, you know, like so glamorous and so big. And I just wanted to experience the big city. Oh my God. Every time I remember that you worked in Vegas, I'm always like, what? Yeah. So you're at CIA, two years there. Now… Do you feel that cooking school is something that you needed to do? For me, it was, 
I loved it because I didn't know anything about food other than Korean food. So every day was so much fun. Just learning about making pasta or scrambling egg was like so much fun. So building the foundation was very important. So could you have been successful without cooking school though? For sure. But it helped me to move faster. What is your recommendation to a young aspiring cook? Do they need to go to cooking school? Um, I would recommend. It definitely is easier to go to cooking school than to try to learn by yourself and to build a foundation and the skills and techniques. It's a way more diplomatic answer than mine. <laughs> but um, you got placed at Danielle right after graduation. Mm-hmm. So it's a two-year program mm-hmm. at CIA. What was Danielle like? And if those that don't know, Danielle Baloud is one of the most iconic, most important figures in American gastronomy from Lyon, France. I work for him. I love the man. And he has been instrumental in my career and as a support of it. And he has been so supportive of basically everyone. He's just one of those guys that's always on. And you worked at his flagship restaurant on 76 in Madison. What was it like working there? Right after CIA, I thought I was the chef already. And starting at Danielle, it really opened up the reality of the restaurant life that I didn't know. It was a lot of challenges. Um, Way harder than MGM. Definitely. And I doubted myself a lot if I want to continue. What made you continue? I actually stopped. I worked there for a little over a year. And I thought this is for me. Um, I was My making, parents were right. <laughs> my parents were right. Uh, I was making minimum wages. I was also working banquet in the beginning. So some days I will make more. Some days I will make less. So I like barely made… Yeah. Oof. So first few months I barely I also made, had to do feast and fat. You did. <laughs> On Sundays, that was the worst. That's the catering division. Yeah. Delicious. Beautiful Fabulous. food. Um, working there, just standing 18 hours a day, getting yelled at. I didn't want it to do it. So I decided to go back to school. So I moved back to Philadelphia. And Jean-Francois told me, just give another try at his friend's restaurant. He was a chef at Le Becfin at that time. So I'm laughing I, because <laughs> you go from Danielle's kitchen is very regimented and classic French mixed with modern techniques. And it's a demanding place to work with a lot of cooks, right? How many cooks are there? A lot. More than 30. More than 30. Mm-hmm. And Le Bec Finn is an iconic, I don't even know if it's open anymore, mm-hmm. closed recently. George Perrier was the chef. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what Le Bec Finn is to people if they don't know? It's a Classic French restaurant institute in Philadelphia. It's been open forever. Unfortunately, they closed down, I believe, a few years ago. But it's an institute. What was it like working there? What kind of food is it? It's a classic, classic French cuisine. Mushroom cappuccino. I can't even remember. There's a documentary. Have you seen it? With, I did. With George I did. <laughs> did, you, did it trigger stuff in you? Yeah, I definitely did. <laughs> Brought me a lot of memories. <laughs> So you went from one demanding kitchen mm-hmm. to an incredibly demanding kitchen mm-hmm. after your break. Oh, no. That's right after. So I moved to Philadelphia right after. The chef there was Chef Pierre. And then he decided to leave after three months while I'm there to open up his own restaurant. So I decided to leave with him. He wanted me to work with him. And I was debating to going back to school or continue. And what kind of school? 
regular college. I didn't even know what major I would, but I was like, maybe, you know, maybe my parents are right. I should go back to school. But there was something inside that I didn't want to give up yet. So I sent my last resumes to, I'm like, I'm not going to get into this restaurant. So I applied every restaurant in New York, in Philadelphia. And like a week later, Chef Benno called from Per Se. And who is Chef Benno? Chef Benno, he was the executive chef at Per Se at the time. Jonathan Benno was also my chef <laughs> right. at Kraft. Mm-hmm. He was a CDC under Marco, and Tom was the chef owner. And Jonathan Benno was instrumental in my career. And he now has left Per Se, and he was at Lincoln, and now he has his own restaurant, Leonelli and Benno. And the bakery, Lino Tarino, I, I can't pronounce it, but they just got three stars. It's delicious. What did you know about Per Se? I didn't know anything except the French Laundry Cookbook. What's the French Laundry Cookbook? Um, it's a Bible to <laughs> cook's cookbook. It's the book that every cook should read. and It's like one of the best cookbooks mm-hmm, ever. Mm-hmm. Timeless. So I applied knowing that I won't get in. But to surprise, he called. So I went to, I took Greyhound from Philadelphia, stashed there two days, and somehow Chef Benno liked me, so he hired me. What did you know about moving to New York City? Nothing. <laughs> like, I didn't know anything about New York. Like, even living in Philadelphia, I only traveled twice during, like, field trip, but… From Bucks County. Right. But other than that, I only knew, like, it was a big city. With all different cuisines, so I had to go back. What's driving you here? Why are you pushing yourself in all of these uncomfortable situations? I think just being Korean. That <laughs> <laughs> I have to work at the best restaurant, learn the best. and Even though you don't want to? No. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I prefer like the comfort zone. Can you explain that? <laughs> For those that aren't Korean, they may not understand. When you just tell me that, I'm like, I just laugh because I know it's true. People are tired of hearing me talk. What is it to you? Why? I think especially coming as a Korean immigrant, knowing what my parents went through to support me and my sister, it's just in there that you just have to work hardest. Like, And if there's a better place to learn to improve, then you have to be there. Like You always have to be better than today. There's no middle. There's no middle. It's either you're the best mm-hmm. or you are or you the suck. worst. <laughs> yeah. You're at, uh, per se, 2009, working for Jonathan Benno. What stations are you at? I was Komi for a year. What's a Komi? It's a prep kitchen where you peel onions, you do all the labor-intensive projects. On the sort of scale of importance in a traditional French brigade, where is the Comi? All the way in the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to earn your way to get to the top. Mm -hmm. After a year of doing prep work, then where do you go? After a year, I did banquet for two weeks and then I got moved to cheese station. Which is hard. Mm -hmm. Why is the cheese station so demanding at per se? Because you have to pick up all the little mise en place for all the stations have to do. And you're also picking foie gras section. So you're in charge of cornets, foie gras, and cheese. And when you say cornets and all the little mise en place for the other stations, you know, Thomas Keller 
created a way of eating with the canapes, very detailed, perfect, like knife work. It's basically a pain in the ass. So you're doing all the pain in the ass stuff for all the other stations. Yep. It was like <laughs> chopping chives, parsley, shallots, all the good stuff. And then what? And then two weeks into my training, I got into an accident. So I was off work for a year and a half. What happened? Uh, I cut my Achilles tendon. My last day of training, after work, I had my long hache knife. Hache is a um, technique to using your knife to going back and forth to chop it finely. It was a really long knife, so it didn't fit into my chef bag. So I put it in my backpack and all my knives came out from the zipper and I dropped it on my foot. I mean, the accident wasn't that bad. I just went to ER, got few stitches and the doctor told me my tendons were okay. So I had a week off and then went back to work. And a week later, my ankle started really get swollen. And then I was working like 16, 18 hours a day. And one day my chef just pulled me aside and said, I think you have a problem. You, go, you have to go see a doctor. And then when I did, it was already ruptured all the way up to my ankle. Wow. So the surgery was long. It was like two and a half hours. And then I moved back to Philadelphia to recover. What were you doing? I was in bed. I was in bed for a few months and then did physical therapy. So you couldn't wait to get back in the kitchen though? Yeah. First, I was kind of relieved because I was really stressed per se, starting a new station. But I think after a few months, I was really ready to go back. And I think after nine months, I was able to work, but I decided to take extra few months off knowing that once I start working, I won't be taking any times off. So what were you doing in the, your time off? I helped with my parents, the cleaners, and then I stayed home just recovering. Mentally just getting ready yeah. to go back into mm-hmm. it again. Go back to Per Se. What station are you at again? I started back Cheese Station. Why did you have to go back to Cheese Station? I left Cheese Station, so I started in Cheese and then I got moved to Garmage, where I did cold and pasta. And after I moved to Canopy Station. When someone takes that much time off, is it easy to get back into Chef White's and start cooking again professionally? I think mentally it's easier because you're so full of energy and you're so driven. But physically you're not because it takes time to get used to being on the feet again and just being surrounded by new people. You meet someone important there. Who did you meet? When I first worked at Per Se, it was with Matthew Orlando. He's at Amas in Copenhagen. Copenhagen. When I moved back, it was with Nick Ferrara. He's at Angler now. And Matthew Peters, he just won the Bocuse Dior last year. And you also met someone from Korea. Oh, I met Lucy. She was an extern when I was a Kumi and we became good friends. I didn't know who she was. I thought she was just like fun girl, you know, but her father owns a huge Korean high-end soju company, also a ceramic company, and they have a, one restaurant. But at the time they didn't have the restaurant that we'll get into in a little mm-hmm. bit. So, you know, you just talked about a lot of different important American chefs. You spend time at arguably the most demanding kitchen that's not the French Laundry in America. You worked at Danielle. You spent time at 
Lebec Finn, your CV is pretty intense in getting there. You've shown remarkable fortitude and resilience coming after Achilles injury. What's next after 2015? What do you decide to do? I was ready to leave per se. I was ready to see different kind of cuisine, different preparation. And my friend said, oh, like chef at Ko, Momofuku Ko. This is where your story goes so <laughs> wrong. Um, he's looking for cooks. You should just give it a try. So I went to go stage there and I fell in love with Momofuku Ko, old Ko. Old Ko, 163 Ko, my home, Mm -hmm. 600 square feet. What made that place so different for you? As a cook during service, seeing the instant reaction from the guest, that was mind blowing. And just using different ingredients was an eye-opener for me. And I really wanted to work there. And the old co was the original noodle bar. And it's the size of one car garage. And while it was a noodle bar, we changed it a little bit different. There was a different range uh, cooking equipment. But essentially, there's 12 seats, counter, and you're cooking for 12 people right in front of you. Totally transparent. What you see is what you get. Every day is hard because you're working against limited space. But it's fun. And I can't imagine a more different operation than, per se, Danielle mm-hmm. and Lebec Finn. Mm-hmm. It must have been like the polar opposite, right? It was so opposite that it was just so much fun just going into work, you know. Chef gave us freedom to create, to amuse, to give out to guests every day. You're talking about Sean Gray now? Yeah. So there were a lot of freedoms that I never had. Before Co. it was more of a direction that's given to me. Co. more like, show us what you can do and it will help you. It's about improvising, mm-hmm. about making the most of nothing. Yeah. And this is when Sean, I think, was really getting into the peak of his powers too. Real artistry. Mm-hmm. So I think you were at the best possible time because what made, I think, Co so great under Sean, and we actually never technically worked a service together there at the Old Co. Because there's only three cooks. It's too small. The immediacy is so important, but truth be told, it's still my favorite place ever. It's just too intense, I think, with customer interactions. Mm -hmm. But we moved. You were of the opening team of the new co. Mm -hmm. I really admired your work ethic. I thought you were an incredibly gifted cook. You also made amazing family meals. And you just took it so fucking seriously, right? Like, we would have arguments because you were like, no, I think it's better this way. You were not going to be like, what you tell me to do, I'm going to do. You were a free thinker. You were trying to find your way. And I always admired that. And when you said you were going to leave, I was like, I think this is really good for Joe to go out in the world and see what's there. If she comes back, great. If she doesn't, no. And I said, like, if you do come back, we got to work on something. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember sitting down. I think it was the final one before I quit. And you kept pushing me saying, you wanted me to grow within the company. And I just remember saying, I'm 29, I'm turning 30, and I have to travel. I have to see the world. And then… I think I was like, however I can help. I spoke to Lucy. Mm -hmm. You did all of that yourself, but I was like, okay, like, I know I'm going to see Joe pretty soon. I didn't realize I'm going to see you like six months later. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) So I I filmed stuff for the the Winter Olympics in NBC in Seoul, and we were there the year before the Winter Olympics. So we were there in 2017, just that you moved there and you would travel and you did a lot of traveling Mm -hmm. beforehand. Yeah, I did a year of backpacking Southeast Asia. You've been saving money. Mm -hmm. And where did you go? I started Thailand 
and I did Bangkok, Chiang Mai, and moved to Vietnam for a month, and then Australia, Japan, Korea. And you knew you were going to work with Lucy after. Yeah. And what did you know about the restaurant, Gaon? Not much other than fine dining, like Korean fine dining. And it didn't have three Michelin stars yet. I think they received it like a few months before I joined the team. So there were two restaurants, I think, in 2016 in Korea that mm-hmm. got three Michelin stars. Gaon was one of them. Mm-hmm. And I am in Korea and I... We're, we were emailing back and forth over your travels, and I was like, hey, I'm going to be in Seoul. Next thing you know, there's a camera crew there. And I told Lucy ahead of time, I was like, Lucy, don't get mad at me, but I'm going to like talk to Joe about opportunities. If she wants to come back, mm-hmm. I want to welcome her back with open arms. And thankfully, Lucy was like, yeah, sure. We spoke. I think you thought I was fucking insane. Well, I didn't take it seriously. It was, I just moved to Korea and it was weird to seeing you in Korea, first of all. But I wasn't thinking about going back to New York at all. I lived in New York for almost 10 years. So I wanted to go maybe West Coast after. And it never actually like settled in till your second time. When I came back uh, during the Olympics. Yeah. Was it two years ago? Yeah. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. I saw you multiple times in Korea. Mm-hmm. And then I kept on like repeating. I was yep. like, we're doing something. Let's do something. Let's do something. And I still didn't think you thought I was serious. And then the last time I saw you in Korea was when I was like, okay, this is what we got to do. Yep. You can tell me to fuck off, Joe. But like, I know you were apprehensive because you're like, hey, I haven't even been a sous chef yet. I haven't done this. I haven't done this. Like, why were you so nervous about making sure you checked all these boxes? I think for me, I just wanted to prepare myself. I know I'm a slow learner, so I was never rushed to become a manager. Um, knowing that I want to cook rest of my life, I figure I have all this time to learn in the line before moving into management. So I always pushed when offers came. When you came to Major Domo, right? Like you've now been back with us almost a year? Like nine months. Nine months? Yeah. Getting back in the swing of things. You helped us open up Noodle Bar and Bong Bar, but you've been doing a lot of just research and getting your approach down, right? Would you agree that's what you should have been doing? Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what it was like to come to Major Domo? I think it clicked when I was at Major Domo, the things that you've been telling me, your ideas. And I saw the Major Domo as like, oh, this is the guideline of what I should be doing. In a way that like the large format breakdown, which I really believe in. I think it's like something super Korean like that, that I want to bring it to Kawi. Um, and I worked two weeks every day with you, making dishes every day. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm so sorry, man. Like I work like a fucking crazy person. No, but I, there was, honestly, I wish I had more time to spend more time with you doing that. Because I... It opened my mind in a different way that I never thought before. I just, for my own edification so I can get better at it, like, how could that have been better right, for you that those couple weeks when you're in, in LA? Like, I feel it was really overwhelming because while we were cooking and you were making dishes, it was more like the ideology and the feel of the dish more than the dish itself. I think just thinking of creating the dish, you... If I had just thought of it as a one long alley, working at Major Domo with you for two weeks, it 
opened up into a how how should I say it? A crazy maze of shit. Like um <laughs> like open many, many different ways. Well, I mean, part of it was, and we're still figuring this out. You want to make a Korean, but you don't want to make a Korean. I'm just regurgitating a lot of stuff that you're telling me. You want it to be fine dining technique, but you don't want it to be fine dining. It was like a lot of these things. And I was like, okay, like what we need to do is not talk about it. <laughs> Let's just see what we can do. Mm-hmm. The first dish we made was what? Chicken. I believe it was chicken. You told me to Dakdori make or something spicy like that. chicken stew. And then I… Because we went out to eat it. We got some or we didn't. We saw it on the menu. We were like, oh, that's a dish that could be interesting. So I wanted to impress you. So I brined the chicken, took off the legs, stuffed the breast with chicken legs. Very classic French style with a little sauce on the side. And then I serve it to you. And I just remember you just like shaking your head. You're like, this isn't it. Like… You're not thinking the right way or… It's not that you weren't thinking. It wasn't that it wasn't delicious. It was almost as if Thomas Keller made it. Mm-hmm. Right? It wasn't your voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm still trying to find my voice. But you're never… I don't even know what the fuck that is. Mm-hmm. All I know is it, what it can't be. Mm-hmm. And then I think I made my version, which was pretty authentic. Mm-hmm, you just boil the shit out of it. And and it was delicious. And I was mad because <laughs> you just showed up for like 30 minutes and you're like, I just made it better than you. Like, shit. <laughs> but it looked, that didn't look nearly as nice. Right. And to me, I was trying to explain to you about like uh, creating the parameters of how you should make that dish. It's like for me. And when I explain to someone that's learning how to be their own chef is they oftentimes try to rationalize and think and edit in their heads from the middle. Mm -hmm. What they think is the ideal dish and they work out from there. I think it's way easier to know what your limits are and to work inwards. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was, all right, we we just saw your dish and it's probably on the furthest end of finesse and beauty and through Mission Star Dining. I got to make the most basic ass normal, quote-unquote, authentic version of Dr. Mm-hmm. the spicy chicken stew. And then we had them side by side. And one spoke to us more than the other. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it, it just gave us the parameters of what that might be. And I thought that was a really important day. Mm-hmm. Because I wasn't telling you what you needed to do. <laughs> At least I don't think I did. Mm-mm. I think finding the balance between how far I can go and how traditional it can be and finding the middle is like the hardest part right now for me to creating the dish. There was a dish you made me recently that was delicious. What was it? It was my take on chapche. It was a burdock with rice cake sauteed with yuzu kosho. So good. Thank you. <laughs> and I had to be the party pooper after. <laughs> was it valid criticism? Was it? For sure. I mean… The way I thought about creating food was just flavors and presentation. But now I'm thinking more of how I'm going to prep this. Does it make sense for prep cooks to julienne all these burdocks and shave the rice cake, make into noodles? Like there's a lot more thought going behind it now. This is the hard shit. <laughs> so she made this beautiful dish and it was so subtle. And I think the Yuzu Kosho was like, backdrop it was um chapche but not chapche and it was a vegetable forward dish it was fucking genius truly problem is i think that dish would be more presentable 
in a 12 to 15 seat restaurant where you're doing a multi-course tasting menu. And the first thing I asked is how long did it take you to prep brow? <laughs> took me longer than it should. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think one of the things for a lot of people that are becoming their own chefs to figure out is you could have the greatest idea in the world, but if no one else can execute it, it's just too self-indulgent. And you need to start with being self-indulgent. But how do you communicate that? How do you get someone to want to do 45 minutes of julienne for one dish? Because that's there's so much knife work in this dish. And it pained me to tell you that while it was delicious, I don't like telling anyone, like, you need to edit your dream a little bit. That's not what I wanted to do. I was just like, what is sort of practical here? Mm-hmm. How do you make the best dish with the limitations of what might be a prep cook or a, a line cook that doesn't know anything about chapche? Like real world problems. And that was sort of the mantra that you sort of talked about, if I'll shut up, was becoming a chef has nothing to do with cooking anymore. Does that make more sense to you now? It's getting there. I'm starting to understand better. I really do believe that being a chef now, as you know, or getting to know a little better, is all about how you communicate. Which we'll get into after this. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Did you grow up wanting to cook Korean food? No. How come? You grew up loving and eating it. You mm-hmm. love Korean food. I know you do. How come you don't want to cook it? Because it was something that I grew up with that I didn't appreciate. And that's why I wanted to learn how to make French food. Because to me, there was like more glamorous, the foundation of European cuisine. Korean food wasn't cool? No. Why? I didn't think it was cool. Why? It's like humble food, like comfort food. And to me, cool food was using hydrocolids and making a smoke, fancy food. Modern gastronomy. Right. As I was cooking more, um, trying to create a dish, I always went back to Korean cuisine. And I realized that I didn't know anything about it. And that's why I went to Korea. What did you learn about yourself in cooking when you were in Korea? How little I knew. Um, I thought Korean food was all about like spices, sweet, salty, but there were so much things that I didn't know behind. It's very elegant cuisine. Did you feel ashamed that you were ashamed of Korean food? Were you mad at yourself? You're like, wait, why did I feel this way? I wouldn't say ashamed. I wasn't so proud of it that I would show it or bring it 
And what changed when you're in Korea? Like, what was the realization? You're like, oh, I was wrong. This is amazing. This is way more complex than I thought it was going to be. Because that's certainly how I felt. Mm-hmm. Korean food, it takes so much more prep time to create something that's so simple to the guest. And then something that can be eaten so fast. A lot of love goes into every dish, I think. Well, I mean, that seemed, like, give me some examples. Like, I'm trying real hard to sound like I don't know what I'm talking about to you because we can't work on the assumption that people know what Korean food is. Like, why does it take a lot of time? What is that time? Why is it such a long process? What is it about Korean food that takes such a long time to prep? Um, the kitchen that I worked with, we only had one utensil, which was chef's knife. So there's one, um, like 11-inch chef's knife that all the chefs use. And that's the only utensil. There's no peeler. There's no robocoup. So you're doing everything by hand. Wait, is that for a reason there was only one knife? Yeah. Um, chopping garlic. If you robocoup the garlic and hand chop it, they taste different. So imagine chopping garlic and ginger to make kimchi for the restaurant. That's a lot of chopping. For me, when I spend time in Korea, and weirdly, I feel like I've been able to see a lot of different things in kitchens and spend time with Buddhist monasteries and all of these things. It's so hard to make the foundational ingredients to Korean food. Everything is like some kind of jang, which is a fermented thing, or soy, right? Kangjang, right? Which is what? Soy sauce. But is it like Japanese soy sauce? Korean soy sauce. What's different about it? Korean soy sauce are made with meju. It's a fermented soybean block that's been boiled, turned into a block, and fermented for three months. And then you add salt water to that with charcoal. So it's miso, right? No, it's different than miso. Miso is made with koji, where denjang is a so- Korean soybean paste is made with meju. Korean soybean paste is denjang. Denjang. So how could you compare the difference? If someone that's never tasted it, they don't even know what denjang is, but they know what miso is. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? Korean denjang is definitely has more kick to it. It's definitely funkier, chunkier, and aged for longer time. It's more gnarly. Definitely gnarly. <laughs> <laughs> and for a long time, like I've had this weird, much like you, when I wanted to cook, everything was fucking French laundry, Marco Pure White. Pierre Gagnier, and then it was Ferran and Heston Blumenthal. I mean, I'm 41 years old. I've been cooking since I was 22. The last thing I ever really wanted to learn how to cook was Korean food, Mm -hmm. mainly because of the racist implications of all growing up, which is honestly very scarring for me. And I grew to think that it wasn't good. It was embarrassing. It was smelly. It was too pungent. You know, it was simple. And again, I think that it's a little bit different if you are Korean because like we don't have a robust history of like domination. Mm-hmm. As a country, we've just been sort of crushed by our neighbors. Mm-hmm. So our food is something that is uniquely independent than the rest of the region. And, you know, I just, for whatever reason, because I wasn't Korean, because I wasn't American, I never really loved the fact that Korean food could be good. I just never understood it. So I wanted to run away from it as far as possible. Mm -hmm. But if it wasn't going to be French food, I thought my window might be Japanese. Mainly again, because my grandfather was basically Japanese. People don't realize this. 
Korea has been enslaved by Japan, Mongolia, China, pretty much forever. All the, all the neighbors. <laughs> all the neighbors. Yep. And in the Japanese occupation of Korea, they, they took all the brightest men and women and they basically made them Japanese. So early on, I already had sort of a chip on my shoulder against Korean food because my grandfather hated Korean food. And I just thought Japanese was the truth and the light. Mm-hmm. Growing up, I thought that if it wasn't going to be French, if I was going to cook French, it was going to be Japanese. And you know what? I don't need to go deeper into this, but for a long time, I spent so much time trying to study Japanese food. The funny thing is, is I came out the other end being like, Korean food's cooler. Mm -hmm. And everyone has their own journey. And the funny thing is, is I don't necessarily love everything about Korean culture. I don't love everything about American culture. Mm -hmm. But I... I'm Korean when I think about the food. Yep. I can't relate to K-pop. I can't relate to Korean drama. But the food to me is something that I know my ancestors ate the same thing. It's what you grew up eating. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's the one commonality. Mm -hmm. And in my household, I'm going to assume maybe similar in your household. No one said, I love you. No one said anything. To me, what was so funny about Korean culture, at least in my understanding of it, Family and communication only happened over food. It's the one thing that like Koreans could call their own. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's more context behind that. We don't have to go into that right now, but I never thought I'd even give a shit about anything Korean. And it's amazing for me to see you on your journey right now and your own self-discovery on this. And very different. You went down and you worked at some of the greatest restaurants in the world, mostly French. Time and time again, though, you're like, "Mm, something's not right. I feel like I got another journey to take. You travel through Southeast Asia, but you could have worked anywhere in the world, Joe. You literally could have worked anywhere in the world. Why'd you choose Korea? It's like right now, I'm trying to find my identity. I always question myself as a half-growing Korea and a half-in-America, like, what am I really like? I'm not Korean, nor I'm not. American. But you speak Korean way better than I do. Well, I speak less English than you. It's like, <laughs> I'm not 100%. I, you know, like I, I was never 100 to anyone. I was always in the gray area. And I wanted to see like, what would it be like for me to go back to the country that I grew up with and see, like learn the cuisine that I never knew before. And it just felt natural. Like, I really felt the connection between the food and I was like, wow, like Korean food is really cool and I want to learn more. Was there a moment when you were looking at Korean food and you were like, because for me, I felt this. I was like, I'm so dumb. Mm-hmm. Like, Kangjang is not inferior to shoyu. Mm-hmm. Like, everything I thought that was Korean was better in the Japanese version. It's not. It's different. Mm-hmm. When I was in the Buddhist nun monasteries, I could not wrap my head around the fact that certain dishes couldn't be made unless you had like a 20-year-old kangjang yeah. or, or a, a dengjang mm-hmm. that was like over five years old. Mm-hmm. And I was like, if people can understand the beauty, like Massimo Batura has a dish of Parmesan in five different ways, all of different ages. Mm-hmm. And that can get a three Michelin stars. I was like, wait a second. I'm only looking at Korean food from a Western perspective. No wonder I don't fucking get it. <laughs> and it's way more beautiful. And in and of itself, it's its own thing. And that was my realization that 
yeah, kalbi and bibimbap and kimchi, it's all delicious, but I don't know fucking shit about Korean food. Mm-hmm. I didn't know either. But it seemed to me that you knew way more about it than I did. Just because like, I'm more familiar with it. I ate a lot in Korea. My parents own restaurants, so they took me out to a lot of restaurants. And even in States, just because we couldn't get it, my parents would make everything in houses. That's why I learned how to make kimchi, how to make like stinky soybean paste, all from home because we had no resource. Did the food that your parents made in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, was it authentic? 100%. How? You weren't using Korean ingredients. Well, my grandparents would ship <laughs> from Korea from their farm. So, so your grandparents lived on a farm? Mm-hmm. And your parents had a restaurant? Mm-hmm. A Japanese-Korean restaurant? Yeah, for like three years. And what, where's your grandparents' farm? Um, they live two hours from Seoul, like very countryside. What do they raise? Like all the vegetables, like cabbage, beans, corn, tomatoes. Did you spend time there? I did. Is your grandmother an amazing cook? Mm-hmm. She's a great cook. What is, what's her go-to? Um, her roasted kimchi stew. Why roasted kimchi stew? What's the difference? She basically sauteed them very hard with pork fat till they're like half caramelized and then she makes a stew out of it. So kimchi jjigae that's like dark and roasted. Mm-hmm. That sounds delicious. It is. It's very good. I was trying to explain to someone, they're like, why, why Joe? I was like, besides her being a talented cook, like, does she know exactly what her food is? <laughs> My response was, no. I don't think she has any idea. But she's going to struggle and fight tooth and nail to find out what that is. The fact that you don't know means you're so much more open to things. That to me is the strength. That is the vision. Is that you don't have the vision, but you're going to work tirelessly to figure out what it is. And I see you in this process right now being like, what the fuck is it? What is a chef right now? I got to do all this paperwork. I got to do fucking financial projections. I got to do all these things. All of these things are relatively meaningless because at the core of being a chef, it still is. If you can't make it delicious, it doesn't fucking matter. I know you can make things delicious, but... This process that you're in, I think, even though none of it makes sense, in my heart of hearts, I believe that it's all so important so you can actually decide what is important to Mm -hmm. you. I mean, the big drive that's pushing me right now is that as hard as as it is right now, knowing that I have faith that it's going to come together and knowing that I will find my voice, that's how I'm trying to enjoy this struggle. So Korean of you. <laughs> and you please be brutally honest. It's like, how is it so hard? Like, why am I making it so difficult for you? You're trying to open my shell that I want to keep it closed. What and do you mean? If I only thought of it as A is the only way, and I only thought of it A is the way, but you came and then you're like, no, there's actually B to Z where you haven't really thought about it before. And I'm trying to open my brain to think differently. But you're a very thoughtful person. Why is it so hard to see any other ways? Maybe I'm thinking too much. Are you afraid of failing? For sure. Like I had this conversation with you a lot that I shouldn't be scared, just go for it. But definitely I do want to do everything 
and I want to succeed it. Which, in reality, that's not true. How did you learn how to become a great cook? Repetition. And you did everything right? No, learn from the mistake. That's all I'm saying is mm-hmm. like, making mistakes hurts. Failure hurts. It's only natural to like try to not make it happen. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I've been trying to tell you and Josh is just to make it happen. Yeah. To fuck it up right now. Yeah. But why is it still so hard? We don't have a restaurant open. What is the fear that you have from trying to find new avenues for you? I think it's just myself as a personality that even though it's a process to reach to the certain point that we want, I just want to do everything perfect. And it's just in my nature. Like, Do you think that's the problem? Yeah, it is. And <laughs> I know it's my problem and… I've been putting a lot of dishes without trying to think too much. But that's something that I really need to work on. What do you mean by thinking too much? Like I, I for my own edifications, like if you're thinking a lot, that means that like the dish probably should be better though, right? What do you mean by not trying to think at all? What I'm trying to say is like I'm editing in my head too much. Like maybe this one dish is good for me, but now I'm thinking, is it good for other guests who are not Korean or I think I'm just calculating how everyone and I want my thing is that I want everyone to like the dish that I make. That's why it's hard. (laughs) This is so hard to talk about. You're doing great. Really. This is fucking so fucking weird and squirrely to talk about. And plus, this is not something you've ever done before, which is why I want you to do this because this is, I think, one of the best ways you can communicate Mm -hmm. better is by learning how to just talk about your feelings, about your shortcomings, your insecurities, and so on and so forth. Like, this is, I think, so important to be transparent with yourself Mm -hmm. because this is what our industry isn't doing. We're not sharing our our deepest, darkest secrets about our insecurities about cooking. Mm -hmm. Like, how the fuck would you know, Joe? You've never done this before. Why are you acting like you've done this before? (laughs) You know? Yeah. I mean, do you want this kitchen to be set up like a traditional French three mission star kitchen? No, because that's not what we are. What do you mean? That's where you've worked. But not at Kawi. Of course, there's a standard that I will bring from what I learned. But Kawi is Kawi. Like, I'm not going to compare it to per se, or Danielle. Why not? Because I want Kawi to be our own thing. Are you competitive? Yes. So how can you not compare Kawi, your restaurant, to per se, or the French Laundry, or Danielle? Or even Co for that matter? Mm-hmm. Like, let me present this question this way. Do you think that because these restaurants are so established in their fancy French dining, and more expensive means that people are going to leave with a better meal than eating at your restaurant? I don't think having super high-end restaurant with like $500 per meal is going to guarantee you that you're going to have a good meal. At Kawi, I want it to be accessible to everyone. Like People might come to celebrate their birthdays, come in for you know, a drink and a snack at a bar, maybe counter seating, PDR with karaoke. There's so many things that's happening inside of one restaurant. And I mean, you've been planning this for a long time. 
I want to bring like humble dishes that people take it for granted and make the star out of them. Give me an example. We got rice cake extruder from Korea and we're going to make rice cakes in, in-house. And they're going to go throughout various forms and shapes in the menu. Like starting an appetizer, they're going to have their own section, rice cake section, and maybe even in dessert. Rice cake dessert. Mochi. Yeah. Why is mochi so important to you? Not mochi, excuse me. Dok. Just like eating rice cakes brings me all these like memories that… You know, birthdays, New Year's, Thanksgiving. To me, like, rice cake is a happy food. So as a whole then, how do you want this menu to be set up, right? When you sit down, what do you think people, what do you want? I mean, I know that it's going to change, but what do you want people to get? Um, We have chef's counter seating that looks like a sushi bar. And we're going to do a lot of seafood. There's going to be a huge selection of crudo. Is it crudo? Raw fish. So sashimi? No, sashimi. What's the difference? Um, If I say difference between Korean raw fish, which is called hui, and sashimi. Sashimi is a raw fish sliced, eaten with wasabi and soy. Very simple. Oh, the biggest thing is that fish is aged. Whereas Koreans, they love fresh fish. So... They might kill it right in front of you. It might be still alive. And they love that. If you ever eaten just killed fish, it's actually like very textural. Chewy. Chewy, almost crunchy. And Koreans love that. And they wrap around it. They put like spicy sauce, a lot of panchans. Like sriracha? No, um, like gochujang base. It's a Korean chili paste seasoned with vinegar and sugar. And are you going to make your own gochujangs? No. <laughs> <laughs> are we going to use the lab's gochujang? We are working on it. Yeah. Um, what about all the jangs? We have bungees from the lab. I've been actually working on meju. To ma- I want, really wanted to make our own soy sauce so we can use it three years later. But meju making is really hard, especially in states where the bacteria are different in Korea. So... I've been working on it for the past three months. I'm taking a little break, but we'll see how that goes. So like, are people going to come in, look at the menu and be like, where's the bulgogi? Where's the kalbi? Where's the bibimbap? What's going to happen if someone says, I want, I want this? This isn't Korean food. Well, it's my version of Korean food. So it's not traditional. And it can be traditional because my background is not all Korean. Well, my only advice is I'll be here to help you out as much as I possibly can. The only thing I'm ever going to encourage you to be is just do you. Thank you. Don't worry about it. It's got to be this perfect fucking thing. Is Korean pottery perfect? Like the valuable old school Korean no. fucking pottery? Very natural. Explain to me. Just because they're handmade, everything is different in some sort. So it's flawed. Yeah, or they're perfect as it is, individuals. What do you mean by that? They're unique and different in their own way, so… So let's flesh this out a little bit. It's natural because society or you or pressure or whatever, sometimes I think you're trying to be the ceramicist that's making the identical copies of every fucking thing you make. Mm-hmm. 
And anything that's different, you're like, that's not right. I can't do it. But why is Korean pottery celebrated so much so that the Japanese fucking stole it? Why? It's unique. And they're not all perfect. It's perfectly imperfect. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it, guys. That's the first part of our two-part Momofuku Kawi pre-opening diaries series with Unjo Park. She's a terrific person, and I can't wait to see her really grow into this role of being a chef and uh, understanding that idea that being a chef isn't about cooking and being the baddest-ass person in the kitchen anymore. It's about a more holistic view and learning how to communicate and overcoming your fears and finding your voice and having an opportunity and seizing on that. And I really do believe that there's a uh, a linear thread that goes straight through Jerry Saltz's podcast and Jessica Coslow's and Lawless. And this is happening right now with Unjo. And it's a lot of pressure, but I, I do believe she's going to be able to, to use that pressure to create something great. And I'm incredibly proud of her. And uh, I can't wait to see where it all goes. Wishing her the best of luck and I will shut up. Um, Ask Dave at Major Domo Media Questions. I don't have any right now because I didn't bring my computer. So apologies. We will get back to that when we get back to our normal podcast uh, release of some of the things we've banked already. So I will leave this alone. Get you out of here. Please give us five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or however you rate and listen to this podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you to Yola Tango with the intro and outro music. Stay tuned tomorrow for part two of Unjo Park and the pre-opening diaries of Kawi. Thank you. Bye.